Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. I should have mentioned at the outset, but if this is your first time to worship with us, we give you a specially warm welcome. We are grateful that God has brought you our way, and we have a, a gift bag for you. We'd love to get just some very basic information from you to follow up with you, and we delight in the opportunity to worship the Lord together. <clears throat> Several months ago, as uh, I can now say Pastor Mir and I began to discuss what we might want to preach in uh, Pastor Greco's absence, we settled on a series of, of four psalms, and we, um, Kurt, was, Kurt was actually uh, largely behind this, but, but um, we wanted to pick psalm, psalms that pointed particularly to Christ, messianic psalms, psalms that talk about Christ's kingship and lordship. And this psalm that is before us is certainly one of those. When, when you read through this psalm, it certainly um, uses very vivid um, language, emotional language. Um, the psalmist uses that to describe his plight. And it's easy to see ourselves. As I look around um, across this congregation, I know many of you have suffered greatly in, in recent months and years. Um, we are, it's easy to see ourselves, but we can certainly see the psalmist, David, who penned these words, and we know he was a man who faced trouble. We, we might see our nation bowed down under the weight of sin, but ultimately, as we look at this psalm, we should see Christ. We should see how Christ suffered, how Christ suffered for sin, how he bore our sins, and that through his suffering, through his death and resurrection, He's won the victory over sin and will one day fully and finally and ultimately destroy sin. He is the Lord of hosts. He has come to deliver us. So let's keep the Lord Jesus in mind. And you'll notice as, as I read our text, uh, passages from the New Testament that should come to your mind as, as you read some of these verses. I want us to consider this under five headings and and I know that's not the typical three-point sermon that, that all Presbyterians are supposed to preach. But this is a diverse, uh, many-faceted psalm. Um, and the, the points are these, and I'll try to, to slow down and point them out as we go through. Uh, number one, deep trouble. Deep trouble, dishonored for God, secondly. Third, deliverance sought. Four, divine retribution. And finally, number five, doxology. So as we begin, let us go to the Lord and ask the Lord to um, illuminate his word to us as we, as we consider it this morning. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful God, we, we are a needy people. We need you. And Lord, we delight in what you have given to us. You've given us your word. You've revealed yourself, O creator God, through the pages of Holy Scripture. And Lord, we believe that that your spirit has inspired it, and now, Holy Spirit, will you illuminate it to our hearts? Lord, would you open our hearts? Would you give us a hunger and thirsting after righteousness? Lord, may we be drawn near to you, Lord, as we approach your word. Lord, we recognize it for what it is. It is, it is living and powerful. It is, it is quick and active, as, as the writer to the Hebrews said, and, and sharper than any two-edged sword. So, Lord, do your work, even, even bring it as, as a sharp sword to our hearts, 
as we need it this morning. Thank you that you speak to us today in and through your word. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Psalm 61, or 69, beginning with verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the deep mire there where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O oh Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O oh God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you. O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant. For I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table become let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blocked out of the book of the living and let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. 
For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit him, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and ne'er a word, said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Have you ever been in such a dark place, such a place of desperation that it felt like you were looking up from a, from a pit or from a deep well? Maybe you were so low, you felt like you were stuck and, and, and almost submerged in the mud in the bottom of that pit. This seems to be the experience of the psalmist as he pins these words in the opening lines of Psalm 69. We don't know for sure. Scripture doesn't tell us when David wrote this, when, at what point in his life, maybe when he was on the run from Saul. Perhaps, and, and in my mind, it seems perhaps more likely that it was when he was... He had left Jerusalem because Absalom was, was bringing together this coup to try to take over the kingdom from him. And he was, was fleeing from that. We don't know, but, but we know that he's in deep trouble. There's several things that he uses in, in such vivid language to describe this. Deep water, deep mire, drowning. He's, he's sinking. He, he cries out in desperation. His eyes are dim and, and he recognizes that there's attacks from destroyers coming against him. He's, he's overwhelmed. He's sinking. He's struggling to find a foothold in the mire, in the mud. He, he can't find it. The flood is sweeping over him. He's cried out so much he's hoarse with crying out. His, his throat is parched. His eyes are, are dim, puffed, and, and likely swollen from, from the crying out. As I was uh, thinking about this and studying about this, I came across the story this week of, of, a, um, of a bayou in, in Louisiana. And it, it actually uh, became consumed by a sinkhole that opened up underneath it. Some of you may remember this account that happened, I think, in 2012. And it was a salt dome that, that was underneath this bayou. And, and the, the bayou was basically sinking into this sinkhole. And if you, if you go to YouTube, you can see huge cypress trees. And not just one or two, but several at a time, just sinking and being sucked down into the sinkhole. And you think about that and, and how terrifying it might be to be caught in such a situation. And it seems that that is what David is describing in this vivid language in the opening verses of our psalm. Have you ever felt this? Have you ever felt such pressure, such intense pain, such, such grief that you struggle to put it into words? That's, that's really what we see in the, in the opening lines here. David is, is feeling this so intensely that he can't even form it into a prayer. His, his first words in the opening line of, of the psalm is, Save me, O God. It's, it's just one of those bullet prayers that you just fire to heaven. And, and it's in a moment of desperation. And some may scoff at those prayers. And that's certainly not where our prayers should stop. 
But when we're in a situation as David describes in, in these opening verses, that's entirely appropriate. He, he cannot even form his anguish into prayer. He directs, though, he directs his complaints and his pain to God. And then eventually, as we go into this psalm, we'll see him form that pain into a prayer. And I think there's a lesson for us that, that we're in, when we're in a situation like this, when we're in the intensity of, of trials, of despair, of, of grief, of sorrow, of, of, of pressure, of pain, that the psalmist seems to be feeling here, that, that we can cry out to God in that moment, just even, even a, a bullet prayer, an arrow prayer that says, God, help me. God, I'm, I'm drowning. And, and, and maybe at first, all it does is it describes our situation, but it orients us to God. I think there's a lesson for us. The, the Spirit helps us to pray, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. And we should cry out for the help of the Spirit. But we see David is not only facing circumstances, he's also facing individuals that, that are out to destroy him. They hate him. They hate him without cause. They, they attack him with lies. On top of that, he's, he's waiting for deliverance from God, and God is allowing him to wait. And maybe you've asked, where is God in, in all of this? Where's God in, in this intensity of, of trial and, and sorrow and suffering that I'm in? Well, you can ask that, and, and you need to know that, that Christ is in it. And the New Testament teaches us that that these vivid descriptions that, that, that David is, is laying out for us that, that do reflect his life and that we can identify with so often are, are really pointing us forward to what, what I like to call David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He who, who came to bear our sorrows. And, and really it is in this psalm that we see Christ's suffering illustrated vividly. Jesus endured Opposition throughout his ministry. He suffered injustice and cruel hatred. Lies from his own people, the Jewish people. He came to his own, as John tells us in his prologue. And his own did not receive him. And in this cry from the psalmist, we see David pointing us to the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, dishonored. For God, we see in the, the next set of verses, and they point out how David and also the Lord Jesus was dishonored. We saw this first in, in verse 4, and Jesus used that in John 15, verse 25, to teach his disciples about the hatred that he endured from the world. The world hated the Lord Jesus, and, and Jesus used this psalm to teach his disciples about that. We see in verse 5 that, that David confesses his sin. He says, O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. And again, I want to take a moment to, to give us some application in this. Because even when we're in the middle of, of a desperate situation, even when we're suffering, even when we feel great grief and sorrow and loss, even when we're attacked by others, and we're falsely accused, we should have an attitude of humility, an attitude of repentance, knowing that, that we need God's grace. We recognize the wrongs we have done, and we recognize God's all-seeing eye 
in all things. Some commentators look at verse 5 and they, and they, and they, they, they try to put it in parentheses and say, well, this, this is a messianic psalm, but, but we can't say this about Jesus because Jesus never sinned, and that's true. Jesus was sinless, but yet he knew sin. He knew sin because he took on our sin. He, he took my sin. He took your sin. If you are in Christ, he, he took that sin upon him. He became sin for us. So yes, I think that verse does apply to Christ. Not in the sense that he did sin. He committed sin in, in either thought, word, or action. But yet he knew sin and became sin for us. But look at the ways in the verses 6 through 12 and then also in 19 through 21, how they apply to our Lord. Look, look at the frequency of the words, shame, dishonor, reproach. These, these are words that describe Christ's humiliation, his, his going down. And, and you see, really, he, he humbled himself to, to be born, but his, his life was one of humility. His life was one of going down and and. He, he progressed in a downward direction as he went through his life and as he approached the cross. And that moment of his crucifixion, death, and burial, and, and not that that was one moment in time, but, but that point in Christ's life was really the bottom of his humiliation, that he, that he came down. But, but think about what he endured upon this, this earth. The, the accusations came against Christ. When he was innocent, he bore reproach, dishonor, covered his face. Think about what they did to the Lord Jesus when they, when they put the crown of thorns upon his head and beat it down with sticks. He became a stranger to his brothers, as this psalm says. Christ's suffering extended to the dishonor that he received from the prominent ones in society. The Jewish leaders looked down upon him. They plotted how to kill him. And they had been doing that for, for weeks or maybe months when they finally took that and, and, and brought it to fruition. It points out how the elders, those respectable ones in the gates, gossip about him and the, and the drunkards mock him with, with made-up songs, their drunken tunes about him. And as verse 9 says, zeal for his father's house consumed him. This, of course, was quoted by Jesus' disciples. And, and, and this, the Lord brought this to their mind when Jesus cleansed the temple in John 2. And the Apostle Paul takes the second part of that same verse where it says, And the reproaches of him who reproached you have fallen on me. And he, he uses it in Romans 15 to teach us about Christ's selfless sacrifice. Christ was concerned with the glory of the Father. Paul points to this text and he says to believers, You ought then to bear with the weaknesses of one another. Consider how Christ lived only for, Christ's, for God's glory. You too should live a life of selfless sacrifice, bearing with the weaknesses of one another. And as we consider these reproaches, this shame and dishonor, we can see David's words on the page, we know that he suffered reproach, and we likely have felt many of these things ourselves, but we must see how this ultimately points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was dishonored, suffered reproach, and 
as we look to Christ's sufferings, we ought to be bolstered in our faith and reminded of his grace for us in the midst of suffering. And that brings us to our third point, deliverance sought, deliverance sought. Here's where we learn from the psalmist and here's where we are blessed by realizing the work of Christ on our behalf. First, the, the psalmist, we, we see here in this section, in these middle verses, him forming, him, him moving from a place of desperation to a place of true prayer, where he really begins to pray. Initially, he's, he's just voicing his agony, but here he turns pain into prayer. He's genuinely crying out. First of all, he addresses God. He says in verse uh, 13, But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. He knows there's help in no other. He cries out to God. Secondly, he prays specifically. He prays particularly. He prays about particular trials. He doesn't just stop with, help me, O God. He, 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 he goes on in verses 14 and 15. He says, deliver me from sinking in the mire. Those things that he only uttered as a, as a statement of his condition in the opening verses. He says, God, deliver me from these things. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Maybe he still feels like he's in the pit, but he knows his hope is in God. He knows God is more powerful than the pit. He knows that God's love is deeper than those floods that are sweeping over him. Why does he know this? Well, he knows God's character. And he points to God's character in his prayer of, for deliverance. And, and we should do the same thing. We need to remind ourselves of who God is and what he has promised to us, saints of God. In the midst of trials, hang on to those things. Our prayers are based upon God's unchanging character. He calls him Lord. The, the, in, in your Bible, it's likely all caps. It's, it's the covenant name of God. It's, it's reminding God of who he is and the promises he, that he has made. He, he's saying, Lord, remember your covenant. Remember what you've said to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And he cries out in verse 16, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercies, turn to me. Perhaps I, um, Exodus 34, 6 was in his mind, which, which, was, which was a restatement of God's covenant promises, where he told Moses, God is a mer God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We've got to hold on to what God has said that he is. In the midst of trial. Finally the psalmist knows. That he doesn't just need deliverance from the pit. As frightful as that is. But his soul needs redemption. He says in verse 18. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. We must remember that. Whatever our circumstances. Our greatest needs. Are spiritual. Our greatest needs is is to be made more like Christ. Our greatest need in, in the midst of whatever it is you're going through this morning is to be conformed to the image of Christ because the, these earthly bodies will pass away, but yet we, we will live forever. 
and we want to be conformed to Christ, and we want to draw near to God, and, and we want, as, as the, 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 uh, the verse that I read in the, in the opening lines, that, that sorrow can draw us near and teach us. God's grace is abundant in the midst of our sorrows, and, and we recognize the Savior's work on our behalf as David cried out for deliverance, as, as David reminded himself of who God is, we must think about our Savior and his cries and the Lord, how he suffered and, and in the midst of his suffering and even in the cry of dereliction from the cross where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His prayers were not answered by the Father. He was not delivered in his moment of suffering. I think that's why the psalmist returns to that theme in verses 19 to 21 to describe a man forsaken and in despair. His Christ's foes were known to his father. He looks for pity and finds none. His closest companions forsook him and fled. The disciple that had consistently boasted that even if everybody else for forsakes you, Lord, I'm, I'm staying with you, Peter said that, and yet he, probably the worst of all, denied the Lord Jesus as Jesus was on trial. Jesus was, he found no comforters, he found no pity, he was crucified next to two common thieves, one, one of whom blasphemed him and, and the other, of course, sought mercy at the last moment. We think of how Isaiah describes the Lord Jesus in Isaiah 53, saying it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. Jesus was forsaken and abandoned by the Father in his moment of greatest trial. He was, he was banished from the fellowship that had characterized his relationship with the Father throughout his ministry. His prayers for deliverance went unanswered. When he was at his lowest, when he had taken the sins of all of his people, all the sins of all of his people of all time upon himself, and he faced it alone. Just consider how you feel. If Hopefully you feel a, a check in your spirit, a, a check of your conscience when you sin in, in what we might consider a small way. All sin is, is equal in, in that it deserves God's wrath and curse. But, but perhaps you've made a commitment. Perhaps you said you're going to pick up a gallon of milk on the way home from work and you forget to do that. And you get home and your wife says, where's the milk? And you think, I just drove home. I'm sorry. You know, it's a moment of, of, of failure, but it's a small thing. But you meant to keep your word and yet you did not. And, and you feel silly. You feel embarrassed. Uh, and, and you recognize maybe the inconvenience you caused by that one thing. But, but think about serious sins. Think about uh, abuse or, or murder or, or some heinous sin against another person. And think about Christ bearing the, the sin of, of all of his people. And that moment, he did that alone. He did it for you. If you're not humbled as you consider this, maybe, maybe you have not yet considered the weightiness of your own sin. Here the gospel is preached from the psalm. 
So if you're here this morning and don't know Christ as your Savior, if you don't recognize Christ's suffering was for sinners like you, I invite you to come to Christ. I invite you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone, for there is salvation in no other. Christ is the suffering servant. He is the abandoned sin bearer. But he's also the Lord and the coming judge. And that brings us to our next point, moving on to divine retribution. These verses, verses 22 through 28, have, have at times perplexed Bible scholars as they, as they think about these, these strong words, seeking God's wrath against his enemies. What do we do with those? Some, as, as they... Uh, prepare lectionaries of, of reading throughout Scripture, actually leave these verses out because they're, they're difficult, because they're hard. They're, they seem harsh to us, so-called civilized people, that, that, that somebody would pray God's wrath upon other human beings. Well, let us consider, first of all, how David prayed them, and, and then we'll try to consider how they relate to our Lord. Well, David prayed these prayers of imprecation. This, these, this section is, an, uh, if, if you were to kind of break it up into a genre of, of a psalm, it would be an imprecatory section. Because those are prayers of imprecation. Those are prayers of saying, God, judge your enemies. That's what that section is about, verses 22 through 28. And when David prayed these prayers, it was not a personal vendetta. He was seeking God's honor. He was seeking vindication from God. And he was recognizing as, as the inspired writer of these scriptures and as God's servant, as God's king, he was recognizing that, that his enemies were also God's enemies. So we have to keep that in mind as we think about it. David is asking God to curse his enemies, but he's doing that by recognizing that they are also God's enemies. Gerhardus Voss has said, God's kingdom cannot come without the destruction of Satan's kingdom. God's kingdom cannot come without the destruction of Satan's kingdom. And we pray, thy kingdom come. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, thy kingdom come. And part of what we're praying is what is in here in these verses. That's not all that's included in praying, thy kingdom come. But it is included because the coming of, the, of God's kingdom necessitates the destruction of Satan's kingdom. This is asking God, the judge of all the earth, to do what he has promised to do. But, and, and these words may sound shocking to us, but, but it is right. It is right that God would judge sin. None of us want to live in a world where sin is not judged. Sin should be judged. Sin must be judged. And these prayers are against those who persistently forsake God's mercy that has been offered to them. And, and basically turn their back upon the mercy that God is extending. These prayers are prayed against those who fear not God and, and those who have persistently attacked the righteous. The Apostle Paul, in, in writing um, in, in Romans 11, I believe it is, draws from Psalm 69 as he relates God's judgment on unbelieving Israel. The table that should have been a feast of righteousness for the natural-born children of Abraham has become a snare. There, 
their eyes that should have beholden the, the glory of God and his mighty acts, those eyes have been darkened. And God's judgment comes upon those who spurn his love. If the blessings of God are misused, and as James Montgomery Boyce points out in his commentary, they are always misused, he says, unless we allow them to lead us to faith in Jesus as our Savior. They will inevitably harden our hearts, propel us into further sins, and eventually lead to even greater judgment. So I pray that, that no one here under the sound of my voice would, would push away the mercy of God, would say that, that it's better for them to wait, or that, or that they reject the offer of the gospel, because eventually God will judge those who do that. We have many blessings in this nation, and as we, as we think about our, our freedoms this weekend, and, and we, uh, as, as people of, the, of, of God, we, we should think about the freedoms that we enjoy. Um, in, in his commentary, um, Boyce points out some of those, some of those blessings. And, and I don't know if, if you consider the Lord's Day a blessing, but it certainly is. It is a blessing, but it is a blessing that our nation has misused. And we need to beware when we misuse God's blessing. Boyce gives this account uh, from Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. You know that, that Japan uh, bombed our, our Pacific fleet that was sitting in the, in the harbor, in Pearl Harbor, and of course altered the course of history. It, it crippled the Pacific fleet and claimed over 2,400 lives. The bombing, of course, if, if you remember the calendar day, it was on a Sunday morning. And what is not known, he writes, is that after the defeat of the Japan in 1945, General Douglas MacArthur took control of the archives of the Japanese War Department and set translators to work on the enemy's papers. He learned that in the years prior to the war, the Japanese had sent professors to the United States to study America's national character and to determine at what point and in what manner we would be most vulnerable to attack, when it should come. Their reports stated that we would be the most vulnerable on a Sunday morning following a Friday on which both the Army and the Navy got paid. And that's precisely what December 7, 1941 was. In the earlier years, Sundays were sacred days of rest and worship for the majority of Americans. And even those who were not Christians respected them. But that had changed by the winter of 1941. And he writes, Our day of national blessing had become a national hangover. And God turned this former blessing into a curse. That weekend at Pearl Harbor was a debauch of vast proportions. And we were unprepared and unable to meet the Japanese attack when it came. He writes, God is not mocked. We must remember that the judgment of God will in time surely be meted out to sinners. Even though it is not a task assigned to us personally, this includes our own use or abuse of God's gifts. We forget a truth like this at our great cost and peril, end of quote. Those are sobering words. And I think that, that we as Bible-believing Christians and, and, and as I want to speak to young people this morning. You are under the blessing of the Lord if you are hearing the preaching of the word this morning. Not because I'm a great preacher, but because God's word is proclaimed. You hear God's word read. You hear God's word spoken. You hear it in your homes. I trust. Handle the blessings of God with respect 
and respond to the gospel call, respond appropriately to them because Christ is the judge. Revelation 19 speaks of Christ coming. He is the one called faithful and true. He is the one in righteousness. He judges and makes war. That is the Lord Jesus who is today offering you salvation, but will one day be the judge of all those who reject him. Now you may ask as you think about a text like this, these verses, should, should we ever pray these? Well, I think we need to be very careful because we recognize as we read them that God is the judge, that, that God is the one who, who brings justice ultimately. But I was reminded of, of my time in seminary, and it was, it was during a summer Greek class. And, and I don't know if you remember, I can't remember the year, I think it was 2014, when there were Islamic extremists who had beheaded Christians. And, and it actually filmed this and put it out there for, for people to see, to make a statement. And, and, and it, it, was, it, was, it was shocking, it was horrifying, not only at, at, the, at the, the terrible way in which they took the lives of these Christians, but the fact that they, would, that they, that they publicized it and they wanted the world to see. And, 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 they, and of, of course, it was, it was not just against uh, image bearers of God, but against God himself, about those who represent God. God's people. And we were closing our Greek class and, and the professor asked one of my fellow students to pray. And, and he prayed a prayer, an imprecatory psalm against these individuals that had brought this, this, this atrocity. And, and it was chilling. It was, it was sobering. But I thought it was appropriate because here were people who, who, were, who were mocking God and, 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 and saying to the world, look what we can do to Christians. But we know God is the judge and the judge will come. And it should bring comfort to us knowing that, that God, our judge, will set everything right. Romans 16, in, in just this, this very short snippet of scripture says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And that involves those workers of Satan who bring things against God. God will make all things right. And that, that brings us to our final point of doxology. Because as we recognize God in all of his attributes, in his covenant faithfulness, in his mercy, but also in his righteousness and holiness... And justice, we should praise him. And that's where this psalm ends, just like many psalms do. And there's two brief points I want to make under this heading. God, uh, David praises God for his present care. Even in the midst of, of, of great suffering, he is praising God. Look at verse 33. He says, the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. So David, of course, has, has gone from barely whispering his plight in the middle of suffering to praying and, and, and citing God's covenant name and reminding himself of God's covenant faithfulness. And here he turns it into praise. He says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Let me ask you, is that your prayer? Is that the desire of your heart? Even, even in the middle of hard circumstances that, that you go from from just uttering your plight to turning it to prayer and turning it to praise? Can you be reminded of God's present care even in the middle of, of trial and suffering? Secondly, we see in these verses of praise that, 
that David's pointing beyond himself yet again. In the final three verses, he, he says there, Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Well, we know that, that under David's rule and for a time under Solomon's rule, the people did dwell in peace under the king. But if you, if you recount the history of, of Israel, it, it was not always pretty. They were not always in the land. God punished them for their idolatry, took them out of the land, restored them uh, in, in, in part to, to the land. But I think David's pointing beyond himself, beyond the exile, beyond the return, beyond the rebuilding of the temple, pointing even beyond the advent of Christ to the time of the new heavens and the new earth. New earth. When, when God will make everything right, when, when every tear will be dried, when, when God our King shall come in, in justice and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. As God's people were often put down, we, we suffer, but let us look to Jesus and be reminded of the words from Hebrews 4 that says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who, one who in every respect it has been tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ gloriously conquered. He suffered for sin. And as we suffer, let us look to him. We know that he sympathizes with us in our weakness. He hears our prayers. And Christ, the Lord and King and Judge, will come and take us to live with him forever. Praise his name. Let us pray.